Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Welcome to episode 91 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. A busy week for all principal areas of financial crime this week. The institutions of the European Union have issued updated guidelines and reached agreement on new laws respecting anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism. From the US, more COVID-19 fraud and convictions for insider dealing relating to the development of COVID-19 drugs. And of course, there's plenty on cyber attacks, including the publication of Allianz, they're the international insurer's annual risk barometer. Let's get into it. As usual, what I've done is I've linked the main stories and then flagged them in the podcast description. We will start this week with sanctions. The sanctions news starts in the United States, where the Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, has announced sanctions against shipping companies which have carried commodities on behalf of the network of Iran-based Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, CODS Force, which is uh, backed the Houthi financial facilitator Saeed al-Jamal. OFAC has also announced sanctions against Hennessy Holdings Limited, which is the, quote, ultimate owner of 18 vessels, including the HS Atlantica, which OFAC previously identified as having engaged in the transport of crude oil of Russian Federation origin priced above the $60 per barrel price cap while using a covered US-based provider after the price cap policy came into effect. This is OFAC's first oil price enforcement action of 2024. Finally, on sanctions designation and enforcement from the US this week, the Department of Justice has announced the sentencing of Jalal Hajavi for violating the International Emergency Economic Powers Act and the Iranian Transactions and Sanctions Regulations. Hajavi, quote, smuggled goods from the US, unlawfully exported and re-exported goods from the US to Iran without a license, and unlawfully engaged in transactions and dealings based on his participation in a scheme to export unlawfully heavy equipment from the US to, ter- to Iran by routing the shipments through the United Arab Emirates. Link to the OFAC announcements, together with the DOG announcement, can be found in the podcast description. Staying with the US, the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, has raised the potential for sanctions to have their effectiveness undermined because of the growth of digital assets. The blog post is published to draw attention to an earlier report published by the GAO on the subject of the agency's efforts to mitigate the risks posed by digital assets. As the post provides in a balance between the threat and more positive news, Quotes, the risks digital assets pose to sanctions implementation will likely continue to evolve. An increase in the use and acceptance of digital assets could erode the potency of US sanctions and lead to greater sanctions evasion. On the other hand, advancements in capabilities to trace transactions and identify illicit actors could mitigate some sanctions evasion risks. 
link both to the blog post and the report can be found in the podcast description. In the UK, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has added a corporation from Bosnia and Herzegovina to the financial sanctions regime in place in respect of that country. Mania DOO is added to the consolidated list and is now subject to an asset freeze. The sanctioning of the company came as a result of the assistance it provided in the marketing of a national day for Bosnian Serbs, which is something that had been held to be unconstitutional by the authorities in the country. Previously, Mania had undertaken work for the British Embassy in Bosnia, which is something that will now no longer happen. Link to the notice is in the podcast description. One more thing to add is that four entities have been corrected on the consolidated list under the following sanctions regimes of Belarus, ISIL, Daesh and Al-Qaeda, and also Russia. In other administrative and designation news from the UK, the Export Control Joint Unit has amended the General Trade Licence Russia sanctions vessels. It's enforced from the 14th of January 2024, and the link to it is in the podcast description. In other news from the UK, quite an interesting story this one, the Administrative Division of the High Court has handed down a judgment in the case of Phillips and the Secretary of State for Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Affairs concerning the imposition of sanctions and human rights. Graham Phillips, a freelance journalist and vlogger who formerly had a YouTube channel, subsequently deleted from the platform, was sanctioned in July 2022. He appealed against his designation in fact, he's the only mono-British national to be sanctioned by the UK, alleging that the designation infringed his right to free expression. Essentially a human rights challenge. The administrative court found against him this week, indicating that his designation was not for his political views, rather it was because his content was more Russian propaganda, which supported its invasion of Ukraine. His journalism was unbalanced, providing a Russian perspective in all material respects. Designation for acts of expression can be allowed under the relevant legislation and as such it was within the powers of the statute. In terms of the human rights argument, the sanction was a proportionate response and compatible with his convention rights. The link to the decision of the Administrative Court is in the podcast description. In South Korea, the government has announced sanctions against its neighbour, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, relating to those involved in its nuclear and intercontinental and intermediate missile programs. In all, two individuals, three entities and 11 ships have been designated by South Korea. The move was a response to a recent missile test undertaken by the DPRK. And finally, on sanctions this week, the Council of the European Union has imposed sanctions on the political leader of Hamas, Yahya Sinwar. This designation is in response to the action taken by Hamas on the 7th of October 2023. The Council also announced sanctions on Ahmed Khaled Mullah, a member of Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Al-Shabaab is of course linked to ISIL, Daesh and Al-Qaeda. Links to the press releases are in the podcast description. Now that's it for fraud. No, no, that's it for sanctions. Let's move to fraud now. The fraud news starts in the United States. 
But I'll throw you back to last week where I praised the resilience of the authorities in the US for the tenacity of their pursuit of COVID-19 fraudsters. Well, this week, the FBI Springfield office issued a press release on how it's combating COVID-19 fraud. It's a short press release and doesn't say anything designed to surprise, but it is a reminder of the seriousness with which the agencies in the US have taken COVID-19 fraud and, and indicates that though we may be leaving the worst of the pandemic in the past, possibly, the desire to recover fraudulently obtained funds remains as clear as ever, at least in the US. Now, that statement from the US, uh, from the FBI, couldn't have been more timely given another announcement of a sentence of a COVID-19 fraudster. Elysier Cher, outstanding name, has been sentenced to 366 days in prison for defrauding the US Small Business Administration scheme of more than $1.6 million in COVID-19 relief funds. Link to the Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. Uh, and actually, while I'm here, I mean, I could have done this insider dealing, but in the insider dealing section of this week's podcast, but that would have been silly. I'll just do it here. It's a reminder that this week that it's not just fraud which came out of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also it was an opportunity for those with inside information to exploit knowledge gained from their position to make a few quid, or in this case, a few dollars. This week, the Department of Justice announced the conviction of Amit Dagar, a former employee of the drug company Pfizer, for insider trading. The press release, there's quite a lengthy quote this, but it does give a good background to the story. It says, Dagar participated in an insider trading scheme to reap illicit profits from options trading based on inside information about the results of clinical trials of Paxlovid, a medicine used to treat COVID-19. Dagar was an employee of Pfizer and assisted in managing the data analysis in certain clinical drug trials. On November 4, 2021, Dagar learned that a Pfizer trial of the drug Paxlovid, a medicine designed to treat mild to severe COVID-19 infection, had produced positive results. The results were confidential and meant to remain so until Pfizer publicized them on November 5th, 2021. Later that same day, and while the results remained confidential, Dagar purchased short-dated, out-of-the-money Pfizer call options that expired days and weeks later. Dagar also tipped a close friend who also purchased short-dated, out-of-the-money Pfizer call options. The following day, on November 5th, 2021, Pfizer publicly released results of its Paxlovid study prior to the market opening. That same day, following the publication of the positive results, Pfizer's stock price increased substantially, opening and eventually closing more than 10% higher than the prior day's closing price. In the following weeks, Dagar sold his Pfizer call options for profits of more than $270,000. The link the Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. Now to the subject of elder fraud. This is something which we've covered in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast on a number of occasions before, most recently in the last one of 2023, which was episode 89. In that episode, I reported on the case of elder fraud from the US resulting in losses of over $3 million, almost $3 million rather, 
However, if I go back through the archive, and I do love that there's now an archive to this podcast, I see the issue being highlighted as a problem in episode 13, almost two years ago, and in other episodes since then. With this in mind, I'd like to draw attention to a blog post from from the incomparable JD Supra. I mean, it really is great, which outlines the top five measures to protect against elder fraud and abuse. Well worth looking at if you work in the financial services sector or in fact the charitable sector, which aims to protect the well-being of the elderly. I've linked it in the podcast description. That's it for fraud this week. Now let's launch head on to a bit of money laundering, or not just a bit, there's quite a bit of money laundering news this week. It starts with the United Nations, which has published a report which highlights that, quotes, casinos, junkets and cryptocurrency have emerged. In fact, cryptocurrency gets quite a kicking this week, as we'll see, have emerged as a critical piece of the underground banking and money laundering infrastructure in East and Southeast Asia, fueling transnational organized crime in the region. As the press release provides, countless recent cases demonstrate that online casinos and related businesses have been used by major organized crime groups to move and launder massive volumes of state-backed fiat as well as cryptocurrencies, effectively creating channels for integrating billions in criminal proceeds into the financial system. At the same time, the creation and success of these underground banking mechanisms has helped expand the region's broader illicit economy, in turn attracting new networks, innovators, and service providers to the criminal ecosystem. Cases examined also highlight how illegal online casino operators have diversified business lines to include cyber fraud and cryptocurrency laundering, with extensive evidence of organized crime influence within casino compounds, specific economic zones and border areas, including those controlled by armed groups in Myanmar to conceal illicit activities. The link to the press release and the report from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime can be found in the podcast description. Now, big news from the European Union. There's quite a bit of news pumping out of the European Union this week. First, the European Banking Authority has published its final report providing amending guidelines on customer due diligence and the factors credit and financial institutions should consider when assessing the money laundering and terrorist financing risk associated with individual business relationships and occasional transactions. The amending guidelines relate to the law contains in Articles 17 and 18.4 of Directive EU 2015-849. The amendments relate to the extension of the scope of the guidelines to crypto assets service providers, or CASPs as they're known. A link to the report is in the podcast description. Now, the second part, which is not unrelated, I would say, the Council of the European Union and the European Parliament have reached provisional agreement on aspects of enhanced anti-money laundering and terrorist financing. As the press release provides, with the new package, all rules applying to the private sector will be transferred to a new regulation, while the directive will deal with the organisation of institutional anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorist systems at national level in the member states. The provisional agreement on an anti-money laundering regulation will, for the first time, exhaustively harmonise rules throughout the European Union, closing possible loopholes used by criminals to launder illicit proceeds or finance terrorist activities through the financial system. The agreement on the directive will improve the organisation of national 
anti-money laundering systems. As it ends, the text will now be finalised and presented to Member States' representatives in the Committee of Permanent Representatives and the European Parliament for approval. If approved, the Council and the Parliament will have to formally adopt the texts before they're published in the EU's official journal and then enter into force. So, just to make clear, in terms of the updates proposed, the regulation will amplify accessibility requirements for information relating to beneficial ownership. It will impose an EU-wide limit on large cash payments of €10,000 and it will enhance the level of vigilance required of entities when it comes to high net worth individuals and extends the range of vigilance regarding ultra-rich individuals. Now, it also expands the list of obliged entities from 2029 to include football clubs and agents, as well as most crypto asset service providers or CASPs. The directive, the AMLD6, the Anti-Money Laundering Directive 6, will provide more powers to financial intelligence units, access for competent authorities to new registers and necessary information sources, and harmonised content and access to beneficial ownership registers. The link to the Council of European Union press release, which contains all the relevant links, is in the podcast description. I've also linked a blog, blog post actually from Transparency International which picks on a particular aspect of the agreement relating to beneficial ownership. And finally, on money laundering this week, actually I suppose it's money laundering and financial crime generally, it's a new report by Verifin, the financial technology firm, which indicates the estimated value of illicit funds which pass through the global financial system. It estimated it that last year to be $3.1 trillion. $3.1 trillion. As the report provides, the most prevalent crimes that fuel trillions of dollars in illicit flows and money laundering activity were a range of destructive crimes, including an estimated $782.9 billion in drug trafficking activity, $346.7 billion in human trafficking, and $11.5 billion in terrorist financing. Additionally, in 2023, fraud scams and bank fraud schemes totaled $485.6 billion in losses globally. The report certainly worth reading as it highlights the scale of the problems facing law enforcement and compliance. And unlike so many of these reports, there's no need to sign up to a mailing list since it's freely available online. So therefore, like so many of these things, I've linked it in the podcast description. Now, just a little bit on bribery and anti-corruption before we leap into other financial crime stories this week. It's limited news and it comes from the United States, where the Department of State has announced financial sanctions on Alberto Pimentel Mata, Guatemala's former Minister of Energy and Mining, because of his role in corruption. According to the press release, he used, quotes, his official position to exploit the Guatemalan mining sector through bribery schemes, including schemes related to government contracts and mining licenses. Link to the press release from the Department of State and to that of the Department of the Treasury, which gives further information about his designation, can be found in the podcast description. Now, there's just a bit of other financial crime news this week before we launch headlong 
into a decent roundup of cyber attack news. So we go to the United States. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, has published its financial trend analysis on identity-related suspicious activity in Bank Secrecy Act reports, which were submitted in 2021. Quotes, the report explores how bad actors exploit identity-related processes involved in processing transactions, as well as opening and accessing accounts. FinCEN identified over 14 typologies commonly indicated in identity-related Bank Secrecy Act reports. The most frequently reported were fraud, false records, identity theft, third-party money laundering, and circumvention of verification standards. These top five typologies accounted for 88% of identity-related Bank Secrecy Act reports and 74% of the total identity-related suspicious activity amount, amount reported during the calendar year of 2021. So that's 74% of identity-related activity, just from those five typologies. In all, the analysis in the report found that approximately 1.6 million reports 42% of the reports filed that year related to identity, indicating $212 billion in suspicious activity. It's a relatively short report and worth reading, and it's certainly useful in terms of the identification of typologies which have jurisdictional crossover. The link to it is in the podcast description. So... This week's roundup of the financial crime news ends with our usual look at cyber attack news. We'll start with the British Library. I've mentioned the British Library cyber attack a few times. You'll remember the attack occurred in October 2023 and the library has been working to write its systems since that time. Well, this week it announced that it started to return its systems online with the return of its main catalogue. Other services will be added in coming weeks, but a quick check of the thesis database, which I'm becoming borderline obsessed with, indicates that it's still offline this week. I've also linked in the podcast description a nice piece of analysis from The Guardian on the cyber attack. If you, you can have a look at that if you want. In news of fallout from another cyber attack, it's been reported that several pensioners have started a claim in the High Court in England against the outsourcer Capita following the cyber attack which Capita suffered in 2023. Now, this is a cyber attack that we covered variously in a number of weeks of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. So therefore, it will be prominent in the minds who suffered at the hands of this cyber attack. Now, Capita, for their part, has said there's no basis for the claim and that it clearly intends to defend the claim vigorously. And frankly, if it is a civil law claim, then I tend to agree it's difficult to raise private law claims for damages for cyber attacks outside the agreed mechanisms through such as data protection mechanisms and so on. Unless they can come up with something novel, the case law stands against them, I'm afraid. Certainly it seems from what I know of the case law. But I, I certainly will follow this one with a great deal of interest. Now, in the European Union this week, the ninth meeting of the Euro Cyber Resilience Board for Pan-European Financial Infrastructures took place in Frankfurt. As is common at these events, some luminary provides remarks. At this ninth meeting, that honour fell to Piero Cipolloni, who is a member of the executive board of the European Central Bank. 
Cipollone's remarks were, as expected, wide-ranging, issuing warnings of persistent cyber-attack threats or events, and how they can impact the financial system. He identifies two principal threats in his comments. First, the threat of ransomware, flagging the recent attack on the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, which disrupted trades in the US Treasury market. But he also highlighted the threat posed by the extent of outsourcing in the financial sector, placing significant reliance on third parties over certain of their systems. In a reminder to industry, robust risk management practices should be in place to protect from issues which might arise. Also talks about the rising threat of artificial intelligence and other potential weaknesses in the system are also identified. You can read the entirety of the remarks at the link in the podcast description. Now, while we're on that subject, allied to this story with remarkable timing, the Financial Times in the UK reports that JP Morgan Chase, the investment bank, is subject to 45 billion, that's billion, 45 billion daily hacking attempts. In order to defend itself, it invests it invests 15 billion dollars per year in employing 62,000 technologists in its defense. Now, that's more than some other organizations like Amazon, for example. I think these comments were made at Davos, actually, which has been busy with a load of financial folk this week. Now, I'll just let those figures resonate. They're astonishing figures, and they are a measure of the scale of the problem. The hackers, of course, only need to get through once, but we have to defend ourselves, or these financial institutions do, because I'm not them. These financial institutions have to defend themselves every time. They have to win every time. It's frequently said the same about terrorists. Terrorists only need to win once, but the authorities have to win every time. A couple of other stories, and once again a reminder that my enemy's friend is also my enemy, with a story from Switzerland, which has reported that government websites have been taken offline by pro-Russian hackers following the visit paid by Ukraine's President, President Zelensky to the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. The attack was detected quite quickly, and necessary steps were taken to remedy the issue. And finally this week, Allianz, the insurance company, has published an article as part of its annual risk barometer, which highlights cyber incidents as the principal global risk. As the article provides, this is a direct quote, following two years of high but stable loss activity, 2023 saw a worrying resurgence in ransomware and extortion losses as the cyber threat landscape continues to evolve. Hackers are increasingly targeting IT and physical supply chains, launching mass cyber attacks and finding new ways to extort money from businesses large and small. It's little wonder that companies rank cyber risk as their top concern, 36% of responses, five points ahead of the second top risk. And for the first time across all company sizes, that's large companies which have a greater annual revenue of over $500 million, mid-size, which is $100 million plus to $500 million, and smaller than that, which is less than $100 million. For the first time across all of those company sizes. Now, cyber incidents have ranked first in three out of the last five risk barometer reports, and it's been identified as the top risk in a number of countries, including all the usual places like Australia, France, Germany, India, 
Switzerland, the United Kingdom and the US. The short article is worth reading, so I have included it in the podcast description. Well, that is it for episode 91 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.